Advent alphabet. We're ready for number nine, the letter I. Let's pause for a moment and ask God for his divine help, his touch in this part of the service. Father, thank you for the plan of salvation. Thank you, Lord, that it was brought into existence and being from what we could see with a manger and that Christ child that was placed there, leading ultimately to the cross. And Father, this season, this season of Advent, when we anticipate and look forward to the coming of the Christ child, that ultimately our hearts will be looking beyond to the coming of the Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of glory. Bless us in this part of the service with your, heal, with your anointing, your special touch, your presence. It's in Jesus' name I pray it and ask it. Amen. Luke chapter 2, verse 7, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room. I already said a, a couple of eyes there, didn't I? And if you said in, in swaddling clothes, in a manger, then you're two-thirds right because... The word we're looking at this morning is the word in, I-N-N. There was no room for them in the inn. In. Don't think of it as a holiday inn. Certainly not the best holiday inn in the land. And even though we would think that the worst holiday inn in the land would be a terrible place to stay, spend the night, I can assure you that if I were to reserve a room there and take my wife and family, they would walk it back out. How do I know? It's because we've done such things. But this inn that we're talking about probably doesn't even compare to the worst holiday inn. It's not even like the Esquire Inn in Evansville on North Fairs Avenue that we learned very quickly was not a place to put evangelists. There's a whole story behind that. You can ask Dave and Connie Hillegas about it at some point if you'd like. This inn was nothing like the Holiday Inn or the Esquire Inn or any other inn that you would think of in the United States. It was most likely a guest room in a house in Bethlehem, perhaps a family member, a friend of Mary and Joseph. They went there probably because they knew them, possibly because they knew them. Maybe they were related to these people. But no matter what the exact circumstances were, we know what the result was, that there was no longer any room in that particular dwelling place, that inn of sorts. Now that's not just a, uh, an, incident, an incidental detail that needs to be overlooked and pushed aside. For I believe that there's a reality here within the confines of this particular situation that stand out in the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. He was born like this so that, so that uh, in such a humble situation so that we, you and I, would feel free to come to Him. 
the very manner of his birth, being turned away from the end to be born in a stable means, means in so many words that God invites the rejected and the abused, the mistreated, the forgotten, the overlooked to come to him for salvation. Jesus was very clear when he walked the earth. He wasn't here to bring salvation to the righteous. He was come to bring salvation to the unrighteous. The, 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 the ones that were whole didn't need a doctor or a physician. It's the ones that were sick that needed a physician. Jesus was very clear that he came for the poor and the needy. Now, those that were rich could come to him as well, but... He was inviting people to come to him who otherwise would have no opportunity to come to him. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, We might tremble to approach a throne, but we cannot fear to approach a manger. There was no room for him in the inn. Now, there might even be a little bit of a hint in his upcoming death in this particular scene. They were turned away from the inn. They were resting in this stable, in, in, this, in this barn situation, whatever it was. Jesus was placed into the feeding trough. And in that situation, he was already, he was beginning to bear perhaps the only cross an infant could bear. And that of extreme poverty and the contempt and the indifference of mankind all the way around him. He said, well, wait a minute, the shepherds came. Yes, that was few in number compared to all the other people. The wise men came a couple of years later, but that's few in number. <coughs> God has come into the world in a most unlikely way. Perhaps what Paul, that's what Paul was saying in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. When he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. <coughs> There's really nothing about what the appearance of Jesus here. I know that we can, we can pinpoint certain things, but from the, from the outward eye, from the common observer... There's really nothing here about the appearance of Jesus that was supernatural. There wasn't any halo. Oh, I know in the pictures we like to see a halo. There's halos around my grandbabies, I know that. There wasn't any angels visible here at this particular place. No choirs that were singing. And if you and I would have been there, we would probably have concluded that this was just simply a baby born to a young couple who was down on their luck, so to speak. There was nothing about the outward appearances here that pointed to God. You know, again, I know that you and I are looking at the picture from the standpoint of the Scriptures, and we can see these supernatural things, but... Just as a common observer at that point in place in time, we can't see those things. And yet, every single part, every, every issue, random detail was planned by the Father before the foundation of the world. 
Everything was planned from before the foundation of the world, but to the unseen eye, nothing looks, nothing looks like God. But to those who understand, his fingerprints are everywhere. His fingerprints are everywhere. There was no room for him in the inn that night in Bethlehem. But the question rings out year after year since that time, is there room in our heart for him? Is there room in our heart for him? Though the world doesn't have any room for him, does he come and dwell in our heart? Because that is what his intent is, for him to come to dwell within us. The end. Number 10 is the letter J. Matthew 1.19, you probably don't have to go very far to come up with a J word. Matthew 1.19, it gives us a J word right off the bat, but we want to go just a smidgen beyond the first J. Her husband Joseph, being a just man. Joseph was a just man, and he wasn't willing to put her to public shame, so he resolved within his heart that he would, he would put her away quietly. He would divorce her quietly. We're looking at the word just as a just man. Joseph was a just man. Now, he's kind of the forgotten man of Christmas. Mary gets a lot more attention than what Joseph does. And yet Joseph perhaps is one of the greatest men of the Bible, one of the greatest men of the New Testament. We don't see a whole lot of him. We don't hear a whole lot of him. But I believe that if we look at him, we can see a whole lot more than what we actually read and actually hear. His father's name was Jacob. His family's hometown was Bethlehem in Judea. But he lived in Nazareth, in, in Galilee, and so, and so that meant that Joseph and Mary had to travel about 95 miles to get to this point of, to register for the census. 95 miles is nothing for you and me, except for when we stop at the gas station going and coming. But 95 miles is not that big of a deal for us, is it? Especially if you lived out west, it's nothing to travel hours to, to go anywhere, 95 miles was a horribly long trip for them. If I had to travel that way, I wouldn't want to travel 9.5 miles. They, uh, Joseph, <clears throat> Joseph was uh, from the royal line of David. The genealogy that you find in Matthew chapter 1 makes that very clear to us that he came from the royal line of David. He was a carpenter by trade. We also can see as we pull the curtain back a little bit that he was a poor man. <clears throat> he and Mary <coughs> presented Jesus in the temple. They brought a turtle dove to sacrifice. Now, the, the, the usual sacrifice was a lamb, right? But if, but if they were too poor to own a lamb, they were allowed to bring a turtle dove. And we find that they, they brought a turtle dove to the sacrifice. And we also notice that he was a devout man. 
Maybe, maybe his faith doesn't shine any brighter than when we find him here grappling with the subject of whether or not Mary had been unfaithful to him. But he loved her so much that he was, uh, he was not willing to expose her to uh, public humiliation, so he was willing to quietly go through the process and, and to divorce her with that quietness uh, so that it would be known by a very few people. And he made his decision, but then he didn't do it. Somebody said that, short, that uh, there was a short but tragic struggle between his legal conscience and his love for Mary. But then one night, God came to Joseph, spoke to him. It's found and recorded there in Matthew one twenty. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Joseph was needing some kind of assurance, and so God gave him. He had to know the truth, and so God gave him. God met him at that point of his need, and perhaps, maybe I'm stretching it here, but perhaps it was at the most precise moment of his need that God spoke to him. And the reason why I say the the most precise moment was because that seems the way that God wants to work with people. He doesn't come in according to our calendar or or our timetable or, or us ticking off the seconds of the watch, but he comes... In the fullness of time, as we looked at last week. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Joseph soon learned that this good news about this child was actually a conception through the Holy Spirit. And so he gladly took Mary as his wife, and he took the baby as his own son, and he gave him the name Jesus. The Bible speaks about the days of Noah and the days of Lot, and we could also even add in there, just for our own benefit, the days of Joseph. There was a lot of confusion in the days of Joseph. There was a lot of confusion now. And what we need now is men like Joseph. We need men that are godly men. And and you say, well, what does a godly man look like? And if we look at Joseph, what can we see about this just man? We see that in in the life of Joseph, he was strong when he could have been weak. He was tender when he could have been harsh. Oh, God, help me. He was tender when he could have been harsh. He was thoughtful when he could have been hasty. He was trusting when he could have doubted. Now when Jesus grew up and he began to teach his disciples, he taught his disciples how to pray. He taught them to pray. Do you remember what Jesus said in that prayer that he was teaching his disciples? When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven. (coughs) Now on the earthly side, how did he know? 
to use the word father as a comparison? Was it because that his earthly father, that he learned about a a good father through his own personal earthly father? That he saw in his earthly father, this just man Joseph, exactly what he was wanting to portray in the heavenly father later on in his ministry. You say, well, I pre- preacher, you're stretching it there. Maybe I'm stretching it a little bit, but I don't think I'm stretching it very far because there's so many similarities and so many likenesses. And if it had not been that way, I don't believe that Jesus would have used the same strong comparison in his teaching because he would have known that people's minds were, were messed up with that false vision or picture. And I know that there's a lot of people today that have that very battle. But you can also, those that are in that situation, look to those who are just Joseph's and see. Oh, that God would grant to us men, especially the same courage that Joseph had to trust even when the circumstances around us did not make sense and do not make sense. But we follow his plan. Number 11. Luke chapter 1 verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now these words were spoken by an angel to a virgin announcing a baby. Announcing a baby who will one day rule the world. Do you know how revolutionary that word uh, uh, kingdom was sounded in that day? How revolutionary it was in that day? Kingdom. His kingdom will never end. Well, what about Caesar? Well, we can't, we, we've got to be careful. We're, we're under Caesar's rule here. We're, we have to be careful about this. Uh, but there was a revolution that was beginning. And where was that revolution beginning? It was in the hearts of people, hearts of men. <coughs> the blue, out of nowhere... To a young, unwed, young girl, young woman. It happened in Nazareth. Uh, it, it, Nazareth. You, you remember what was said in the New Testament here about Nazareth? Was it Nathaniel that said, does any good thing come out of Nazareth? You see, that was the picture of Nazareth. It happened in Nazareth, that this, this minor city, this minor town in a remote corner of the Roman Empire. It just doesn't seem likely that somebody who was born in this particular place and in these ways that would have a kingdom that would never end. Uh, how unrealistic is that? And then you throw in the circumstances of Mary and Joseph. You say, well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, Mary and Joseph were just betrothed. You know, more than what we consider as an engagement, but less than what we consider as marriage. 
They were poor. She was pregnant. They didn't have any connections with all of the elites in, in Israel. They were just a young couple facing a crisis pregnancy. I could get hung up here on this betrothal stuff. Because they were essentially already in, in uh, like I said, more than an, engage, an engagement, but less than a marriage, what we call a marriage. But he was considering uh, divorcing her because of the circumstances. You know, maybe that's what Jesus was, uh, not maybe, that's what Jesus was talking about. Young people, that's what, what Jesus was talking about when he said, uh, um, Except for you can put away. But in any other situation, that's not the case. I don't even need to get into that. The times, boy, I could get carried away there. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry for the truth. I'm sorry for getting carried away there. You see, this whole situation with this, with this Mary being pregnant, could cast a shadow over them for the rest of their lives. It it could lead to rumors and and insinuations. Those insinuations and rumors could follow Jesus through his entire life, even into his ministry. How, How could he have a ministry? How could he have a kingdom? No, they didn't have Facebook, but rumors still spread. Even now when we look back on it, it seems a little bit beyond uh, able to wrap our mind around that the angel's message was so real that Jesus would have a kingdom. But then again, when we stop and realize that he's building it in our hearts, in human hearts all around the world, we can understand that his kingdom will never end. You see, there's two kingdoms in this world. There, there's some that, that are gripped by the kingdom of, of, of the kingdom of God, and, and they're gripped by the reality that this kingdom of God is the greatest kingdom or the greatest thing in the world. The greatest thing in the world is the kingdom of God. Is that the greatest thing in your mind this Christmas season? The reality that God's kingdom is the greatest thing in all of the world? Or is there some way within our hearts, even in this Christmas season of celebration, and all the lights and the tinsels and all the noise that goes on around us, that we somehow still have an attachment to the kingdom of this world? You see, when we talk about the two kingdoms, there's a kingdom issue that is at stake here. And there's only one possible explanation for it in our own lives, and that is how we live, how we portray which kingdom we are a part of. Either you join yourself to the kingdom of this world, uh, this kingdom of this world that is doomed to fail, or you can join forces with Jesus Christ and follow him. 
and be a part of the kingdom of God by following Christ and receiving him as Savior, following him as Lord. If there's any prayer that you want to pray for this Christmas holiday for yourself, this Christmas season for yourself, pray that you would, you would be able to know him and love him and serve him more than you ever have before as the one and the only king for his kingdom never ends. Finally, this morning, we look at letter 12, letter L. Luke chapter 1, verse 44, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. You know, that was Elizabeth speaking there. Elizabeth was talking to Mary when they met. Elizabeth was carrying John the Baptist, and Mary was carrying Jesus. You know, the, the ministry of John the Baptist was what? was to point to Christ. He was the forerunner of Christ. Everything that John the Baptist did was to be pointing towards the one that was coming after him, who he was not worthy to even unloose his and unlace his sandals, he said. He was so much greater than me, and John the Baptist is the one that started the the little cliche that I believe resonates even in our own spiritual lives today as followers of Christ, that he must increase and I must decrease. And if we ever get those things switched around, then we're on the wrong track. We're following the wrong kingdom. We're in the wrong direction. He must increase and I must decrease. And from the very get-go of this particular, of these particular lives, we see that John the Baptist is again laying down as a forerunner of Christ and, and leaping in, his, in the womb when he comes in contact for the first time. In the presence of the divine, knowing the words of Mary and who she was. I know, I know, I, I believe it with all of my heart. You can doubt it if you want to, but babies in the womb can they can see things, they can hear things for certain, they can react to sound, they can react to light. There's a lot of things that babies know before they're born. I learned that with my own kids. And I think that my daughter-in-law here has even mentioned it from time to time in, in, in years past that, that my grandkids have recognized my voice and, and it comes time to preach and they become active. I, I think that there's a, uh, something about that in times past and now they just get so you know, used to me and ignore me. But a baby can learn the voice of his father, the voice of his mother, even before they're born. They can know when they're born then. They can know and recognize the, 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 the calmness that comes from that voice that speaks. John the Baptist's whole purpose was to point people to Jesus. And he leaped for joy in his mother's womb, meaning that he did the kind of prenatal heart, uh, cartwheel all pregnant mothers understand. Yeah. 
Now, this miracle right here, this, this miracle right here, though easily overlooked, could have very well been a great consolation to Mary, who was in difficult circumstances. I think that even John the Baptist was unaware of the meaning of his movement. Yet the leaping, his leaping in his mother's womb that day was probably very likely inspired by the Lord. The Holy Spirit was at work with him even at this point of his life, pre-born life. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, let's ask ourselves a couple questions. Does Jesus seem far away to you sometimes? Does Jesus, do you wonder sometimes if Jesus really understands? A Presbyterian wrote a number of years ago, two babies meet while still in the womb of their mothers and the Holy Spirit bears witness between them. God comes into the womb of a woman and so identifies with humankind in our weakness and most vulnerable condition. God comes in our most weak and vulnerable condition. That's the picture of the whole scene of the manger. That's the picture of the entirety of the life of Jesus Christ. He came to seek and to save they, those that are lost. And so this passage here shines a light on Christmas because it means that our Lord was a part of the human race from conception. Sure, we celebrate His birth on Christmas, December the 25th, but His human life began nine months before that. And even in that moment and in those times, He was working and He was inspired and He was being used and His forerunner right along with Him was being used of God. Oh, this little one that is born, how weak and frail he would appear. How great a distance he had to travel to enter into our world. But truly, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And his very presence caused John the Baptist to leap in the womb an expression of joy and a consolation to the heart, troubled heart of Mary. And he comes to leap into our lives, consolation and joy in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of our perplexities, and to give us his divine presence, dwelling within Emmanuel, God with us. Let's stand together this morning. Has anybody told you Merry Christmas? Well, Merry Christmas. Trust you have a good day today. Advent alphabet, so many different words to bring us into the thoughts of what this season is and represents. May God bless your hearts today.
Praise his name. Praise his name. Chad Damon, would you dismiss us in prayer?